0: See you in about 12 minutes. Sounds good. (laughs) That's better. John 316. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, this single tweet-length verse from the Gospel of John came to represent the core message of the Bible in parts of the American evangelical movement. It was a mantra regularly recited by Billy Graham at hundreds of what he called crusades, most attended by tens of thousands of people, where he often gave out copies of John's gospel. White men at sporting events across the US wore shirts and carried signs emblazoned simply John 316. Even today, the verse sprouts like dandelions on yard signs in some rural communities. It's emblazoned on T-shirts worn on Christian college campuses, and it's featured on shabby chic decor in home magazines. What can be read as a description of the way in which God kept faith with humanity has become a claim of privilege by some Christians who contend that accepting Jesus into your heart guarantees you an exclusive all-access pass to heaven. John 3.16 has been interpreted as meaning that if you simply profess a belief in Jesus, you're holding a winning ticket to timeless heavenly bliss. If you announce your belief in Jesus, then you're in, you're done, you're all set. And if you don't, you're out, lost forever left behind. This interpretation has been criticized as turning the Christian faith into a magical incantation, amounting to salvation by syllables, as some have called it. It's reminiscent of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, who just had to close her eyes, click her heels together three times, and repeat the words, there's no place like home. And there she was, home but there are other, deeper, juicier ways of understanding John 3.16. There are ways in which this verse might be reevaluated and reclaimed, in which it might be actually born again. Or if you're as twitchy about that phrase as Nicodemus was, and as I am, there are ways in which this verse might experience a rebirth. Let me tell you about three points where scholars of the sacred text who are wiser than I am have offered alternative interpretations. Here's the verse again, in case it's not tattooed on your body somewhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. The first word I want to highlight is the initial use of the word, so. God so loved the world. Some biblical scholars contend that the Greek word translated as so should actually be understood differently than we typically do. They argue that it's not intended as an indicator of quantity. Jesus isn't saying that God loved the world so much that God gave their son. That's certainly true, But that's not what the word so is thought to mean here. Instead, Jesus is saying that God loved the world in this way. We might say God loved the world like so. It's in this way that God demonstrated their love. And think about that. The way in which God chose to restore the world, God's method, tells us a lot about who this God is. God might have done any number of powerful things to heal an aching, wounded creation, but God chose a particular way. God gave their own child. In John's Gospel as presented in The Message, God loved the world in this way. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God revealed themselves to the world in the form of Jesus, the physical embodiment of God's character and passion, who lived a human life and who died a human death. Jesus personified God's unstoppable love so completely that they were killed for refusing to set limits on that love and God loved the world so, in this way, despite everything that their chosen people did, despite rebelliousness and violence, despite whining and crankiness, despite emotional affairs with other gods, God loved the world in this startling, extravagant, sacrificial way in spite of all that. I think the theological term for this is the no matter whatness of God. And God loved the whole world, loved us and the people we love and the people we can't stand. God loves without limits and without conditions. Remember that theological term, no matter whatness. There is nowhere and nothing and no one that God doesn't pursue and love completely and seek to heal. God loved the whole world, not just the good bits, in this way. It was true then, and it's still true. With the worst we can do to God and to one another, and it can be truly horrific, God still loves us so, loves us in this way, because only love can change us lastingly for the better. The second word, the next word I want to focus on, is the word believe. John 3.16 says that God loved the world in a particular way so that everyone who believes in Jesus may have eternal life. But what does believing in Jesus mean? If all we have to do is check a box and say, yep, personal Lord and Savior, I got it. Then what was the point of Jesus's life, of the things they did? and the stories they told? And why do we gather to hear the stories of that life and to share one another's company in the hearing of those stories? New Testament scholar and theologian, Marcus Borg, wrote about what believing in Jesus means. He said, prior to the 17th century, the word believe did not mean believing in the truth of statements or propositions, whether problematic or not. Dramatically, the object of believing was not statements, but a person. Moreover, the contexts in which it is used in pre modern English make it clear that it meant to hold dear, to prize, to give one's loyalty to, to commit oneself. Most simply, to believe meant to love. Indeed, the English words believe and belove are related. What we believe is what we belove. So to believe in Jesus is to commit oneself to loving the world that Jesus loved. To believe in Jesus is to follow the way that we see in their life, which Borg describes as a life of loving God and loving others, a life of challenging the powers that oppress this world, a life radically centered in the God to whom he bore witness. In a recent forward day-by-day reflection, the Reverend Scott Gunn wrote that Jesus was continually saying, this is not about me, this is about the kingdom of heaven and my Father who sent me, see that in me. Jesus sought out people who were willing to be transformed so that through them might come a new and transformed world. Jesus made it clear that this transformation wasn't a do-it-yourself project. As they told Nicodemus, it couldn't happen without being born of the Spirit. As we heard last Sunday on Pentecost, it's the power of the Spirit that enables us to do our part in bringing about the kingdom of God, in creating the place where heaven and earth overlap. In my hat tip to today's designation as Trinity Sunday, I would say that it requires the power or the energy of the spirit and the path or the way shown by Jesus to help fashion the realm of God, which is our source, our longing, our home. One final note, for Christians, Jesus embodied this new way of being. But the way that Jesus lived, the way of self-surrender is known elsewhere in the great wisdom traditions of the world's enduring religions. It is not an exclusively Christian way. The last element, the third element I want to highlight is the phrase eternal life. Now, we today hear eternal life as a pretty clear reference to going to heaven when we die. But mainstream biblical scholars note that in Jesus' time, most of the Jewish people didn't believe in life after death. Jesus himself didn't talk much about an afterlife or focus on how to get to heaven. Instead, notes theologian, university professor, and Anglican bishop Tom Wright, The whole point of Jesus' work was to bring heaven to earth and join them together forever, to bring God's future into the present and make it stick there. Eternal life is a major theme in John's Gospel, and while that Gospel affirms the idea of life after death, John's phrase, eternal life, or sometimes everlasting life, doesn't refer primarily to life after death, according to Mark Borg. He writes, the English phrase translates a Greek phrase that in turn expresses a Jewish notion, the life of the age to come. In John, eternal life is often spoken of in the present tense. The life of the age to come has come. It is here. Eternal life does not refer to unending time beyond death, but to something that can be known now. To know God in the present, Borg says, is to experience the life of the age to come. It is a present reality for John, even as it is also a future destiny. So eternal life is somehow both now and Not yet. Brian McLaren, in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, recasts the phrase eternal life as an extraordinary life to the full, centered in a relationship with God. Eternal life is a generous, wholehearted way of living. A live link to God in this moment, not in the sweet by and by. John 3.16 is fundamentally about a path into life with God here and now by being born of the Spirit and following the example of Jesus. Its goal is not successfully escaping from this world, but healing this world and ourselves and each other. So if I were to rephrase John 3.16... It would be wordier, though still tweet length since the character limit was expanded. And it might go something like this. For God loved all creation in this way, that they offered Jesus as an incarnate example of a self-sacrificing commitment to love and justice, so that everyone who follows that example might discover the rich God-filled life that they long for. That's way too long to put on a yard sign, but it sounds like the essence of the good news. May it be so.